Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil and Gas Podcast. We appreciate you tuning in to today's episode, episode five. I'm your host, Josh Shelton. I'm with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, episode five, man, how's it going? Doing good, man. Doing good. Made a quick trip to Alabama this week and back in the saddle and ready to get into it. All right. Well, uh, as as normal, uh, before we jump in, I wanted to uh, remind our listeners of uh, the jobs we have posted at globalenergymedia.com slash jobs. I checked uh, about 45 minutes ago. We had 18 jobs posted there. Again, that's globalenergymedia.com slash jobs. Uh, go check, check it out. See if there's anything there that you're interested in. Uh, Again, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to reach out to either Ryan or myself. Uh, Ryan, we had a couple of a couple of articles that came out. One that was pretty extensive with market realists. I uh, wanted to jump in with that, man. Uh, it's been some interesting news over the past week or so with inventory uh, rising, uh, but prices not necessarily reflecting that. They're they're kind of holding steady. What'd you think about uh, What'd you think about that article? Yeah, a lot, a lot of good stuff in the article there. Um, they covered. I mean, it's a seven-part, I think, article, so a lot of, a lot of depth there. Um, you know, the projections were that we were going to kind of see a little bit of a, a decrease in inventory, and we didn't get that, and so we're getting uh, more, more barrels in storage. And so, um, I, I, I am interested. It seems that the the market is, you know, it is adjusting, but not like you say. You kind of expect maybe with as much storage as we have right now, the market to be a little bit more. Um, not as optimistic as it seems to be about oil prices right now, but it is hanging in there in the you know forty five to fifty five range, and so I'm not sure what all that means. It is interesting to see though. I think in the background of all this, we're still seeing maybe a little bit of optimism over what OPEC's going to do, um, and they're still trying to work all that out, as you know. But uh, but yeah, a lot of good stuff in this article. Looking at the price per barrel, we're at, we were at fifty one fifteen per barrel on April the fifth, um, which. Highest it's been in, in a little while, I believe. And uh, looking at the production, another thing that was a little surprising was the EIA reported that U.S. crude oil output rose by 52,000 barrels per day. Um, that was measured over from March 24th to March 31st. And uh, so production is up, inventory is up, and price is up. That's, uh, that's a rare combination of things, right? Yeah, well, it, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. It, and as we go forward, it's gonna be curious to see, you know, where where does the production level off at? And that's kind of we're still trying to figure that out because, um, you know, production is increasing, and so that's gonna be you know, more barrels on the market. And so, yeah, I'm not really sure where it's gonna uh, eventually plateau at, but I do think that it's, it's it's positive that the market is maybe not overreacting here. It's kind of taking a, a balanced approach and, um. You know, as we've seen before, um, you know, you get a lot of oil in storage, and all of a sudden the prices can plummet, and they haven't done that. So that's that's really a good sign for now, at least. Right. Well, the EIA they they also uh, reported that U.S. crude oil imports fell by three hundred and seventy four thousand barrels per day. Uh, I wonder I wonder how that is going to affect the production and uh, inventory. I mean, that with the imports dropping that much, uh, is there anything? that that should indicate to us as far as projecting out in the next few months. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I was on the road. So I didn't get to really track, you know, what happened this week with this, but I know that there's talks um, about putting a 20% tax, a 20 or 25% tax on oil import imports from everyone, but uh, Canada and maybe Mexico. I know Canada's not included in that. 
And if that happens, then it's going to be interesting to see how the market reacts because um, U.S. producers could obviously ramp up production if they're not going to buy foreign oil anymore or if they're not going to be willing to pay the 20% tax is a better way to put it. Um, and so it, it's going to be interesting to see that as as – you know, as you mentioned, that there's a decrease in imports, but also there's this there's this background story of are we going to tax foreign oil at a twenty to twenty five percent markup? And if that's the case, then you're going to look at you know these U.S. producers who all of a sudden now have the capacity to ramp up and to fill that 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 spot in the market right, right. with a, with a larger spread. You know, because they, they can you know th- their spreads all, uh, uh, their their numbers or profitability numbers change because you know to buy a barrel. Uh, from the Saudis now cost 20% more. Well, okay, well, that means that your economic uh, situation has changed, or you can buy it from Canada. So I'm not really sure where the imports are going to go. I know the tax, the, the the tariff is is being looked at. I'm not sure, like I said, I didn't get to check it this week, but that could have you know serious impacts on what we see in the future with oil uh, being brought into the country. Well, uh, I hate to hit you with a curveball here, Ron. I didn't mention this earlier. Um well, you know, we, we just recently got involved in a little tussle with uh, with Syria from the chemical attacks and uh, missile. You know, we launched some missiles yesterday. Um, historically, when when things like this start to ramp up, what what does that do to oil and gas prices? Is there a particular trend that, that you've noticed in the market? Yeah, and this is what I try to caution people with um, who are really optimistic about the oil price right now. Um, I like to mention that in 2000, I don't know, one, two, three, somewhere in there, I think it was 2002. Um, I don't remember the exact countries that were involved, but I think it was Israel was going to look at go to war with Iran or somewhere in the Middle East. And prices skyrocketed. And that was because the market was fearful that oil production might slow down because Israel, I think it was Israel, might go to war. So we're, we're talking about mites and mites and mites, and the price skyrocketed. Okay, well, we've been, the U.S. has been involved with foreign wars and skirmishes pretty much since 2001, okay? And and so when you hear that we are going, you know, there are attacks, and there's, you know, Syria is a big complicated mess, but there's ongoing conflict there, and there's ongoing conflict in northern Africa. There's all this ongoing conflict, and the market is not scared like it was back in the early 2000s. So the market has shifted, and so... These I don't want to, I don't want to diminish the importance of you know human lives being lost, but as far as a military um, magnitude, we'll put it that way, they're not big enough to impact the marketplace right now. And so, early two thousands, you were seeing there's fear that was driving the price of oil. Right now, we've got so much oil in storage that fear really isn't having a big you know a big right. demand on on the price. So yeah, it's probably impacting it a little bit, but historically. You know, it could make a huge swing in the price, and we're not seeing that today, which means that we've got a lot, a lot of oil that we either have access to now in storage or we can access quite easily. And so people aren't as um, fearful as what might happen over there. If it escalates and gets, you know, serious and you start seeing pipelines and oil fields and stuff being taken over on large scales, maybe that will change. But for right now, the market's really saying, okay, we've got a lot in storage and we can access it here in the U.S. pretty cheap and pretty quickly. So they're not really reacting as they have maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I, I can see that. I can definitely see that. I mean, the, the fear base that was there um, you know, 10, 15 years ago was definitely a lot more visceral than, than it is now. Well, Ryan, finishing up the market real estate, one more one more thing I wanted to note. And in, uh, in the seventh uh, part of this article series, uh, the market realists, uh, they get a, a stat from EIA that reports that U.S. gasoline inventories fell by 0.6 million barrels. So there was a, uh, a drop in gasoline inventories 
uh, from March 24th to March 31st. Um, not not a huge drop. I mean, 0.6 million barrels. I mean, it's, it, it's a slight drop. Uh, does, is that indicating a trend that you think is going to start? Uh, have you what, what has been your feel for the gasoline in, inventories in the in the U.S.? Yeah, I think I I need to double check, Josh, but I think that you know that that uh, diesel and gas had um, you know real high inventory, and you know this is recently as February, so um, I can double check those numbers, but I'm pretty sure late January, early, early February, you know there was a ton of gas and diesel that was you know just kind of sitting around in inventory, so um, you know to kind of start drawing from that is not really a concern. Also, you have to deal with, um, and, I, and I think it was this article that I saw that touches on this. Um, the 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 refineries going and in, in dealing with shutdowns and in the in the seasonal shutdowns that that kind of affects production outlook. But no, I don't really think that's a big issue. We we had high inventory, you know, really recently, um, and just a you know a couple months ago, and so not a real impact on the market from my perspective. Um, especially when you got so much oil in store in storage that you can just pull out and process right. and be done with. That's what I thought. Okay, uh, well, moving on to the next article, we are moving to basically. Uh, three articles on the Permian, all of them by the oil and gas investor. Uh, <laughs> kind of the story of the week every week is uh, deals happening in the Permian. So uh, things still look optimistic, even with the you know the surge in inventory over the last week. Um, people are still making deals. People are still optimistic that uh, the oil prices are, are going to become stable and that big long term projects are going to take place in the Permian. Uh, the first article is regarding Chevron. Uh, it pivots to Permian Shell as a mega project era fades. Um, what do you think about the, the Chevron deal that is going on in the Permian? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, what you're seeing is is the big boys. They're all, they're all saying, okay, hey, you know, historically, maybe we haven't put a lot of value in the shell plays, but now they're just having to. The shell plays are so profitable at low prices that, you know, it just makes sense for them to get in there. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's just making sense for them to come in there, buy up acreage or partner or do a JV, whatever, whatever they're going to do and come into the, to the Permian. And as we talked about before, they can, you know, they can play this thing out for a long period of time. So, you know, if they can get a good deal now, you know, here, here's kind of the, the, the thought process is if they can buy land now and acreage now in the Permian and it's expensive, you know, as we've seen some of the reports, you know, buying acreage right now in the Permian is not cheap. So if they if they're saying that they can buy it now when the land is you know maybe at an all time high um, and they can make money at fifty dollars a barrel, then that means they're set up to make money for pretty much a long you know a long term deal. So they could be making money at sixty dollars, obviously maybe maybe it's far down to forty thirty five. This kind of depends on their economics. But if they're buying land now and they can make money at fifty, then they're really confident in a long term strategy and they have the cash, they have the capital capital to really sit back and to play the market um whereas you know smaller companies don't so for chevron this is probably a long-term play and they don't hedge their oil production so they're going to be in there um you know kind of playing the market as it goes and that means that you know they they're thinking that if they can do this now then they can do it for a long time right right which is great news this is great news for for us yeah um, it's, it brings stability you know the, you know and, and i love that we you know we do a lot of work for a lot of small companies we don't work for any of the major companies that's just not our our market space so we love those guys um but you know just from a standpoint of just kind of looking at how everyone tackles it these big guys they have the capacity to kind of 
ebb and flow with the market, and it's going to open up unique opportunities for the smaller guys to where they're going to be a little bit more risk, you know, uh, willing to take a little bit more risk than maybe a larger company is, and go and find something different that hasn't been developed just quite yet. So it kind of opens up new areas for the smaller guys as well. Right. Uh, moving on to uh, the next uh, the next article from the oil and gas investor, uh, Numerico Energy Holdings LLC are developing a 468 mile uh, pipeline system to move natural gas from the Permian Basin to the Texas Gulf Coast. Uh, this was released on April the third, uh, so pretty new. Uh, the uh, the Pico's Trail pipeline will boast a capacity of 1.85 billion cubic feet per day. Uh, it's pretty massive. It's supposed to become operational in 2019. Uh, again, what we see, uh, a trend that we're noticing is uh, natural gas moving toward Mexico. Uh, it seems that there, uh, people are trying to capitalize on the opportunity. Ryan, what do you think about uh, what you think about this article? Well, I, I mean, good night. Every week, it seems like we've got a four to five to six hundred mile pipeline. We're talking about. I mean, that's right. you know, you know, if you're if you're the construction business, then you've got to be excited because they're going to be breaking these things into multiple spreads, and there's a lot of opportunity there. I was just stunned that you sent me another another project that's you know. Uh, that kind of size and magnitude, it was really it's just like, wow, okay, here we go again. And again, this is these these projects are encouraging because if they go out and they get the deals in place, then they're going to happen. And so, um, you know, there you go. You're talking about construction happening, and that's a long term process. Uh, so, yeah, exciting stuff. And at some point, we've got to. You would think we'd peak out on these four to five hundred miles leaving the, the the Midland area, but apparently not because every week it's just you know there's a new one and there's a new one and there's multiple companies that are coming together to put these um these deals in place so that's encouraging also yeah uh just another note here uh numerico is partnering with cresta fund uh ilp a fund focused on energy infrastructure so they're uh, they it's not numerico by themselves they are being they are partnering with uh, cresta energy and uh and another uh, Chris Rozelle uh, said the Pico's trail pipeline provided a direct link between two equally important growth stories in the Permian supply region and Gulf Coast demand centers. Uh, so same um, same thing we had last week. There was a, a natural gas pipeline being being built that was supposed to supply uh, Mexico. So and, they, they and, don't. And where is it going, Josh? It's going to Corpus Christi, right? Is that what I read? Corpus Christi is where this one's going as well? Uh, uh, they had Gulf Coast. Uh, I don't think they have a... Maybe yeah yeah it is it is Center Energy Corpus Christi had yeah so it's going yep. so it looks like it's going to uh, the the Chenier facility there in in Corpus Christi so you know every week we talk about Corpus Christi as well it's just yep. uh, and so yeah I, I found that interesting that we got another big line going to Corpus Christi um, again so yeah it's unbelievable all right uh, moving on to the next article with oil and gas investor this is uh, the last last one uh, on the Permian. Um, it's, uh, it titled the article is pioneers. Tim Dove sees no midstream stress in Permian until 2019. Um, what was your take on this, Ryan? Yeah, I think this is, you know, one of those articles that's really helpful because when people start comparing the Balkan to the Barnett, to the Eagleford, to the Austin Chalk, to the Permian, you know, here's what's really important. You know, he he talks about in this article how they're trying to prevent from these bottlenecks from happening and how it works out. And it's very good if you don't really understand, you know, kind of the dynamics. It's a good article to kind of get a a 30,000 foot view. But here's the key that that they're not expecting any bottlenecks from the midstream operators until 2019. And so that means that they can kind of go out there with their drilling program and say, okay, we're not going to be waiting on pipelines to be 
open for us to you know put our product in. And so that's encouraging, and that means that you can get the barrel to the market a lot quicker. Um, and so this is one of those things that I think that's often left out when you're talking about um, the Balkan or the Marcellus or the Utica or wherever you're talking about is this is the kind of information that you need to have to figure out okay how does it you know how do you get a barrel to market and what's the quickest way and and, and, and uh, Pioneer saying that you know they're not expecting any real problems for the for, you know for the next what two years so that's 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 encouraging news for Permian producers. Yeah, it's excellent news and there's a there's a couple of interesting things uh, in in the article that. Um, that he mentions one was uh, essentially he says essentially we have to add a new gas processing plant every year in the Permian. We already have a massive water system in this play. You better control your own water. Uh, and he mentions that in an attempt to prevent any of these bottlenecks from happening, that there are certain things that they're having to do to um, to basically keep that from happening. And, and so far, they, he says they've done a really good job of uh, preventing that. Um, another thing, let me see if I can find this in the article. He mentions that. Um, that there is not any good storage facilities in Mexico. So he says everything that goes to Mexico uh, requires a base load. So it just has to be a continuous uh, import or export from here to to Mexico in order to supply their energy needs uh, because they don't really have any good storage facilities there. Um, that you, are you familiar with that, uh, with the issue of them having a, a lack of storage there? And so um, the imports of of uh, natural gas need to be, I guess, more continuous. Right, right. Yeah, um, you know, I don't know all of the, the dynamics. Again, this is the Texas, uh, this is the Texas and Mexico oil and gas podcast portion <laughs> right now, right? Um, you know, uh, I'm not, yeah, I'm not up to speed with all of the Mexican uh, storage uh, limitations, but I can tell you, if there is a demand with what's going on in Mexico, it will be met um, because there's money being poured in there. So I, no, I don't really, I'm not really up to speed on the Mexican storage situation. Um, I did, I did catch that as well. Uh, but, but that means, you know, him putting that out there, you know, someone in his position, when he says that someone's going to read that and go, okay, well, l- 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 yeah. yeah, let's go, let's go fill that gap. Right. And yeah, so absolutely. it's it's a very smart, it's a very smart tactic for him just to kind of drop that out there. Well, I could do it, but he says, I think he says, uh, the quote says, well, I could send it to Mexico, but so what, what does it do when I get there? There's no storage. So, yeah. you know, you know, he, that's a that's a nice that's a nice way for him to throw it out there. And maybe Pioneer has aspirations as well. We don't know, but he can just drop that line out there, and people who are going to read this article, they're going to go, okay, well, huh? There's yeah. an opportunity. Let me go see if yeah. I can get that field. So uh, I don't think that will be a long term problem in Mexico, especially if the big you know the big CEOs are talking about stuff like this. Right. Yeah. Good point. Uh, that huge opportunity, I'm sure, for someone to capitalize on. Well, Ryan, that's it for the Permian. Uh, we have one more thing I wanted to mention, uh, an article um, that mentions the Austin chalk. Uh, it seems to be having a revival. People are optimistic that uh, maybe we will have some news breaking that won't be all about the Permian here pretty soon. Uh, it seems optimistic that there might be some pretty big uh, opportunities uh, in the Austin chalk. Did you, uh, you yeah. have any comments you wanted to make about that, Ryan? Yeah, well, the Austin chalk, you know, it goes, you know, um it covers in the U.S. at least. It covers Texas and Louisiana and all the way over to Mississippi. You know, just kind of clips it. But um, what's interesting about this article, um, if if you want to kind of get into the technical aspects of the Austin chalk, it kind of breaks it down. And so, um, but what I've seen is, and I was telling you offline, and why this article kind of caught my attention was, um, I've seen producers on LinkedIn that are starting to say, "Hey, we're looking for Austin chalk acreage." And, and and so I've been kind of tracking that because, you know, what we hear is Permian, 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 Permian. And then now we're seeing an article talking about Austin Chalk. This article is, uh, 
it's uh two you know two three weeks old so it's it's really new it's really it's really relevant um, and on top of that I'm seeing people on LinkedIn start to talk about Austin Talk production and to kind of get that back going and like I mentioned just a few minutes ago you know if the big guys are in there buying up acreage in um, the Permian and it's kind of shoving the little guy out if you think of it that way well it's going to create a unique opportunity maybe for a uh, a smaller producer to go to the Austin Chalk or some other area and to take advantage of it where a larger producer may not do it. So I'm not sure if that's what's going to happen in Austin Chalk. I'm just saying that, that there is a lot of talk there. So if you have history working in those areas and you've worked in those plays, then you probably need to start talking back to your old clients and saying, hey, I'm hearing this is picking back up. Are you guys going to start your drilling program back? Do you still have your leases? You know, And, and there's a lot of opportunity for people in all parts of the business when you start to see this, you can go to producers who you've worked for in the past and say, hey, you had some acreage. Did you lose that? Have you been keeping it up? If so, I'm starting to see some opportunities there with some technology that's coming on the market. And so it, 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 nothing else, it gives you the opportunity to kind of start that process and maybe gives you some business moving forward. That's great, man. Um, well, as always, uh, we're going to finish hold, up. Hold on. I can't let you get off, Josh. Is there a bird where you're at? Because I, I can hear you. I can hear a bird somewhere over there. So I don't know if you're uh, – are you in the park recording the podcast today? No, no, man. I'm in the house, man. I can <laughs> I can hear him. So uh, I didn't want the listeners to think that you're out in the park recording because it, it, that's what it sounds like. I can hear uh, – some bird over there chirping. So no, I'm actually I'm in my home office right now, and uh, it's beautiful weather outside. It is apparently, beautiful weather outside. Apparently, a bird so. is trying to talk to me. <laughs> so sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just could keep hearing him. I thought, man, he's he's in the park recording, and I'm in the office. So I don't, I wouldn't blame you. I just was jealous of you. Well, not quite, man. I wouldn't mind being out in the park today. Well, uh, well, Ryan, uh, as always, we're going to finish up with a rig count from uh, Baker Hughes. Uh, we're up 15 rigs today, a total of 824 in the in the U.S. Texas is 411. The Permian has 319. The Eagleford has 73. So uh, um, 374 were up year to date in in uh, the nation as a whole. So um, showing good numbers, man. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. And um, you know, one quick reminder for the APIYP event that is on, um, we'll link to it in the show notes. I think it's April 27th, 26th, somewhere in that date. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, we did have some listeners, Josh, reach out to us about the networking opportunities we discussed in Fort Dallas-Fort Worth. So we're still trying to gauge interest there. So if you're interested, just go to the Global Energy Media page, use the contact form, and um, Josh or myself will get back out to you. Guys, we appreciate you tuning in. And until next time, keep climbing. Thank you.